that were both unpredictable to his disciples and are unpredictable to us. And his unpredictable thoughts and statements and actions challenge us, challenge our belief system, challenge our thoughts. For, for most people, this statement of Jesus is the most disturbing and the most moving and the most haunting uh, and the most maybe hard to understand of Jesus' words from the cross. These words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words not only reveal the darkness that Jesus went through, they reveal the darkness inside uh, those people who surrounded him that day on the cross. So how should we understand this statement? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, before we look at these words, I really want to spend most of the morning uh, getting the perspective right. In other words, uh, like a football game that may have 80 cameras on the field trying to catch the right angle. I want us to catch the right angle. How are you and I supposed to look at? From what perspective, through whose eyes, are we supposed to look at these words of Jesus? And how are we supposed to understand? Perspective changes everything. So how, how are we supposed to look at them this morning? So I want to I uh, focus there. What perspective should we look from? Well, there's the soldiers who mistreated him and cursed him. There's the people who were passing by who despised him. They're the priests and the scribes who insulted him. And then those crucified beside him, at least one of them made fun of him. So it wasn't enough that they had crucified Jesus. They didn't just want to crucify him. They wanted to destroy him. They wanted to crush him. And here's the most important part of this. They wanted to dehumanize him. Now, it makes the story easier for us to think about that all the people who were dehumanizing Jesus must have been terrible and horrible people. I mean, if the soldiers did it, we say, well, they had been desensitized by their experience in battle and war, and they had been desensitized by their training. I mean, after all, they were soldiers. That's easier for us to accept. Or it's easy for us to accept that, sure, the people hanging on the cross beside him treated him that way. I mean, they were criminals. That's easy for us to accept. But the people who led the charge weren't the soldiers nor the thieves. The people who led the charge were the most spiritually committed people on earth. They were committed Jews, many of whom were religious leaders. They were priests and scribes and holy men. These were, these were by and large, morally good people. They were honest. They paid their taxes. They kept their word. They're generally the kind of people you'd want your sister to marry. These were upstanding citizens. They had good reputations. These were the kind of people that were, that were humiliating and dehumanizing Jesus. So it wasn't enough that they had conspired with their enemies to get Jesus crucified. It wasn't enough that they wanted Jesus to die the most cruel and inhumane form of punishment. They also wanted to humiliate, dehumanize, and crush his spirit as he hung there. And then there's the people that were sort of passing by. They weren't soldiers or thieves or religious leaders. They were just passing by. They were Jews. I want you to remember, this was Passover season. 
So they were Jews who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. The night before the crucifixion, they had eaten a roasted lamb and they had offered a sacrifice to God as their religious habit would require. They told the story of how God saved his people from slavery in Egypt. They talked about the day that the Messiah would come. And after the Passover meal, they sung Psalm 106 together. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good and his love endures forever. How could anyone sing a song of praise and with the same mouth spew hurtful, hateful words at the man whose so-called crimes were healing the sick on the Sabbath? These were the people who were passing by. Now, it's easy for you and I to sit sort of from our recliner in the 21st century and to dismiss these people as primitive first century Jews who were blinded by their own ignorance. They weren't really Christians like us. We would never do such evil things. Really? In the trial and the crucifixion of Jesus, it wasn't Jesus who was on trial. It was us. Humanity was on trial. The cross of Jesus really put humanity on trial. And this scene with the passerbys Hurling insults at Jesus points to something that's dreadfully wrong with all of us. Now, we're tempted to kind of see this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're tempted to see these soldiers' violence and the, the, the uh, hypocrisy of the religious leaders and the, the people passing by, the crowd insulting and, and harassing Jesus. We're, we're tempted to look at this through the perspective of maybe an angel who's floating on a cloud, playing a harp, heartbroken at all that God is going through. And we sort of see ourselves so far removed and transcendent and too pure and too holy to ever participate. So we look down and we say, no, please stop this. I'm waiting to come and get you, Jesus. Just say the word and we'll leave heaven, we'll put the harp down, we'll hang it on the cloud, and we'll come and rescue you. We're tempted to see ourselves with the Father by the throne frustrated at what his son is going through. But don't make that mistake. Don't make the mistake of seeing through the perspective of an angel or God the Father. Don't be self-righteous enough to ever make that mistake. The only angle available to us is from the perspective of the crowd. We, we are to see these words not as far-removed, sophisticated 21st century Christians, but as severely broken people with dark blemishes, fully capable of the same kind of evil. And that darkness begins at a young age. I, I, was, uh, I was always the youngest kid in the neighborhood that I grew up in. The neighborhood that I grew up in, people didn't move very often. So families had lived in the same house for decades, most of the time. My mom still lives in a house that we uh, moved in when I was a year old. 42 years, my families lived there. And, and that was true all across our neighborhood. And so families became very uh, familiar with each other. We were like, you know, relatives almost, big brothers and little sisters. And so we had 35 or 40 kids in our neighborhood. And I happened to be on the bottom of the food chain. I was uh, one of the youngest kids. Actually, when I was in kindergarten, there was one other kid born through an unexpected pregnancy, and he, was, he started the, the, the front of another generation. I was on the caboose of the previous one. And so uh, when we would, you know, play in our neighborhood and all of that, 
I grew up kind of running with the crowd. The problem was everybody was faster than I was. I remember being uh, chased into my backyard one time by some bully teenagers. Everybody was older than I was and everybody was bigger than I was. And I, I managed to hold them off with a really secure fence and a German shepherd who was very protective of our family. And I remember watching fights, but since everybody was bigger than I was and older than I was, I did everything I could do to stay out of them. And uh, because I was younger and smaller in school, I wasn't the, I was an athlete, but I was never the best athlete. I wasn't the class clown. I wasn't the straight-A student. And at times, to be honest with you, it just felt powerless, sort of floating along in the open sea of adolescence. And then one day, my chance came. There was a young man named Kelly Ledford. Kelly Ledford uh, was slightly awkward. He was a year younger than me in school. He was a little bit smaller than I was. And an argument broke out. And uh, I don't remember. I have no idea what the argument was about. And it got a little bit physical. And I can remember just balling my fist up and jamming it as deep into his stomach as I could and just knocking the air out of him. Finally, finally, I had my chance. I had never, I had never thrown the first punch in my life. Never have since. I guess I'd never been so confident of the outcome before. And Kelly grasped for air. I still remember him sucking air in, and he backed up. And, uh, and as he was backing up, I remember just staring at him in anger and challenging him, come on, come on. I mean, let's, go, let's do this. I can remember just challenging him. And I walked away that day, in, in, in the full moment of adrenaline, feeling powerful and satisfied. But when the adrenaline wore off, something began to set into my gut that felt completely wrong. A few months later, something happened that none of us could have ever predicted. Kelly Ledford was, uh, on a Sunday afternoon, walking out in the woods behind his house, and a 70-foot pin oak tree fell and drove his head in the ground straight between his feet and killed him instantly. Our entire school went to the funeral. I mean the whole school. And I remember sitting in the service, staring at that cold casket, and it all hit me at one time. I never had a chance to apologize. I never had a chance to tell him that I was sorry, or I regretted it, or I, or I was wrong, or I shouldn't have done it. I never had a chance. And I remember sitting in the pew in the back of that church, crying my eyes out, weeping tears of shame, just embarrassed at what I had done. In recent years, there have been several uh, cases publicized of cyberbullying that have resulted in suicide. And you don't have to look far to hear reports of harassment and assault and violence and war and terrorism uh, every day in the news. And we see the dark side if we want to see it. And deep down inside, we know it exists. When I look at our country and see the way that our country's become extremely divided, it makes me wonder, what would it take for one group of, on any side to move into violence and to begin to justify it? What would it take? How far away are we from our country moving into violence and then justifying it against somebody else? We've seen violence against immigrants and at political rallies where people show up with guns and politicians have been shot and gay people have been beaten and students have 
vowed to wipe out their entire high school. Protesters who, in God's name, shoot abortion doctor clinic, uh, 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 abortion clinic doctors. There's plenty of darkness to go around. Selfishness and pride and fear and ignorance lead us into hate and rage. And we see others as worthy of being despised or worthy of cruelty. And so we dehumanize. This is how our darkness works, to demonize those we disagree with or those who see the world differently than we do. And the truth is, we all forsook him. (laughs) When he was hanging on the cross, don't see uh, as the teacher's pet sitting beside the Father on the throne. Don't see yourself floating on a cloud looking at the scene. See yourself smack in the middle of the crowd as one who forsook him. We're to see this scene as one of the crowd, and once we see ourselves there, we're ready to move to hear these haunting words of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From this vantage point, from this perspective, Let's, let's look and see what these words might mean to us. So if you have something to write with, let me give you a, a few thoughts about Jesus' words and what they tell us about him. Here's the first thought. Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God. Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God. Isn't that an astounding thought? Jesus, God as the Son, the Son of God, the second member of the Godhead, the second member of the Trinity, knows what it's like to feel abandoned. Now, I don't claim to completely understand that. Maybe you figured it out. I haven't figured that one out. How, How can that be? Was Jesus really abandoned? I don't completely know the answer to that. I don't know, but here's one thing that I do know. It does seem to be clear. Jesus no longer felt the presence of the Father. He felt alone. He felt abandoned. He knows what it feels like to feel hopeless. He knows what it feels like to feel despair. He knows what it feels like to wait and to not seem to have an answer. And at some point or another, we've all felt that way. We all ask, God, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? Uh, When a loved one dies, when we're in a battle we never wanted to face, when we feel humiliated, we say, do you even see what's going on? Do you even see this? Do you even, in moments of severest injustice or our perception of it, we say, God, do you even notice? Are you even aware? Do Do you feel this? Do you see this? And the good news is we can pray to the one who knows how we feel. I'm thankful that our king fully and completely understands what it feels like to be, a, to be abandoned by God. Most of the time, it's not what I know that gets me in trouble, it's how I feel. Are you about like that? I have trouble reconciling what I feel with what I know. That, and I'm thankful that Jesus, the second member of the Trinity, knows how I feel. Because that's where I get caught up. So I'm thankful that our king understands what it feels like to be abandoned by God. Now, Jesus is no aloof leader. 
who has no way to relate to us. He's not the one that just barks the orders out from some throne, some smorgasbord of luxury, and he, and he says, you do this and you go over there and, you know, bear the pain. You can search world history. Most of the um, ineffective leaders of the world, there comes such a disparity between them and the average person, between their experience and the average person's experience, that they have no understanding what a common person goes through and therefore makes terrible decisions. That's not Jesus. That's never, never was him. Unlike most human leaders, the leader that we follow suffered the most. He suffered more than any of us. So Jesus knows what it's like to feel abandoned by God. Here's the second thought. Jesus teaches us by example what love is. Jesus teaches us by example what love is. Jesus' words reveal to us that his death was not painless. Jesus wasn't jacked up on some supernatural painkillers. He didn't have anesthesia. He didn't have some nerve block. He was, his body was fully sensitized to every scrape, to every scar, to every breath, to every puncture, to every wound, to every moment that went by. He was fully sensitized to it all. He felt it all. He wasn't on some painkiller. Part of the gift that Jesus was offering us was that he suffered in our place. He didn't just die in your place. He suffered in your place. That is a profound thought. Jesus showed us by example what love is. What is love? You might want to jot this down. Love is sacrifice. Don't give me a costless love. Don't give me a love that costs you nothing. That's not love. That's convenience. Real love is sacrifice. Grace is very expensive. To pay for the sin of the world requires deep love, and that deep love is sacrificial. The gospel calls us to a similar life. The cross of Jesus calls us to a life of risk and sacrifice and to give ourselves so that someone else might know the love of God. Love, love costs God something and love will cost you something. Has sharing God's love cost you anything? When's the last time you've been inconvenienced? When's the last time you were made to feel uncomfortable? When's the last time you took a risk? When's the last time you sacrificed something in order to be part of God's redemptive work in the world? See, that's the same vein that Jesus was in when he died on the cross. Every time I walk through the foyer, uh, the Cafe Mundo, and I see these suitcases with duct tape and stuff on them and stickers from around the world and I see people weighing them and getting them ready and I see a team of people in our church who have taken their vacation time and saved their money for a year or year and a half stored that up so they can fly to some other part of the world some one of the poorest countries in the world and they can be a sign of of love they can be a sign of sacrifice they will go to another place in the world and churches will have buildings because that team went. People will be refreshed. People will be encouraged. Supplies will be brought to restore that community, refresh that community somehow. That's, every time I see that, I see love in action. When I see a group of our you'd be amazed the greeting that we receive as we send teams to Indonesia and El Salvador and 
uh, uh, Detroit, all over the world in a heavy uh, Muslim community and different places, that, uh, country after country after country our church travels to. And you'd be amazed the greeting we received. Part, part of, they can't fathom. You took vacation time to come here? You, pay, you mean you paid your own way to come here? See, that's love in action. That's sacrifice. Maybe you've passed this building on a, on a Friday night before and you've seen people gathered outside hurting people on the front patio. Sometimes out taking their last smoke before they come inside and join our Celebrate Recovery meeting. And what's waiting for them on the inside is Frank Roman and his team who's going to put their arms around them and love them and minister to the hurting. That's love. It's sacrificial. It costs Something, it's a Friday night commitment, it's every week, it's week in and week out, it's when there's highs, it's when there's lows, it's when there's a few people, it's when there's a lot of people, it's when it's going well, it's when it's going bad, it's when you're dealing with addicted people and challenged people and hurting people and wounded people and they are all over the map. Maybe you've passed here on a Tuesday night, you've seen Cafe Mundo full and you've seen Connie Carter and her team who, who, who minister to people who are grieving who've lost someone, and, and they provide a warm and an authentic environment where people can grieve, feel their loss, and heal over their loss, and move on. That's sacrificial. To deal constantly, week in and week out, with people who are hurting and grieving is sacrificial. That's love. If, if you were to walk the hallways this morning, you would pass classroom after classroom after classroom after classroom of babies and toddlers, uh, uh, of infants, of middle schoolers, of fifth graders, of fourth graders, and there are dozens and dozens of incredible servants who are ministering to children tirelessly. And, and, and they have to sacrifice. Some of them sacrifice coming to the worship service. Some of them sacrifice having adult conversations and fellowship and life group because they've chosen instead to serve. And children don't, don't speak words of encouragement. Children don't say, I'm so happy that you took time away from your adult life to come and serve me. They don't have standing applause when you walk in and say, oh, yay, everybody stand to give teacher an applause. Children don't do that. But you know what? That's love. It's sacrificial. It costs something. Some of you have taken a risk. You're getting ready for Easter. You've been praying. You've been talking. You've been sharing. You've been inviting. You've, you've welcomed someone over a cup of coffee or a meal. Somebody who's far away from God. It's a sacrifice to, to minister to someone, to reach out to someone who has a completely different belief system than you do, or none at all. It's a sacrifice. That's what love looks like. Jesus teaches us that redemptive love, real love is sacrificial. By example, he's hanging on the cross. Real love is sacrificial. And Jesus gave us the prime example. Here's the last thought. In his worst hour, no doubt about it, this is the darkest moment on the cross. Jesus prays. Now I want you to think about this with me. Typically when tough times come, our human default setting is to run away from God. Or, or to at least 
whether we intend to run, want, run away from God or not, sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, sometimes we just withdraw. And, and we don't, we don't, we can't withdraw, withdraw with prejudice. So we just withdraw from everything, and that includes God. We withdraw to try to stop the pain, stop the hurting, stop the wound. We try to withdraw until we can get better. And when, when, and when life goes a way that we don't expect, we're faced with a challenge we don't want to face. We become disappointed with God. And sometimes we stop praying, and sometimes we decide if this is the kind of God that he is that would allow something like this to happen, maybe I don't want to know him at all. Or maybe he's not even there. Jesus didn't do that. Even though he was questioning God, why have you forsaken me, he was still praying. Now I want you to watch this. This may be the most important thought of the day. Questioning God in prayer is an act of faith. Questioning God in prayer is an act of faith. Because I have to believe that he's there, that he cares, that he's listening, and I'm still talking to him. Questioning God in prayer is an act of faith. That's what Jesus did. Why have you forsaken me? Who's he talking to? The crowd? The soldiers? The thieves? The people passing by? The religious leaders? No. He has taken on the abandonment of the whole world. And he's driving that abandonment straight into the face of God. And he's saying, now why did you leave me? Why do I feel this way? Why do I feel abandoned and alone? These words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, they actually came from Psalm 22. Maybe, hopefully you found that by now. This is significant because it was actually most of the Psalms, if not all of them, were songs. And every Jew with an earshot of the cross would have known this song. They would have known Psalm 22. It would be like this morning if someone were singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. A group of people who'd been believers for a long time would immediately think to themselves, that saved a soul like me. Right? Because we know the song. Jesus spoke the first line, but he knew the rest of the song. Now, now imagine if you were with an elderly family member and, and she's dying, and you hear her whisper the first line of a song. And then, and then she passes away. Knowing that she didn't get a chance to say the rest of it, you would go and look that song up to see what the rest of the words were because you would know that's what she was thinking. She was thinking the whole song. She just sang the one line. If I were her pastor, when we got to the funeral, we'd all stand and sing that song together. Because that was what, what would be what was on her mind when she left the earth. Which means that she was thinking about that song when she died. Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They tell us Jesus was thinking about this song in Psalm 22 when he died. The song's written by David, and it talks about a time when he was suffering at the hands of his enemies. And you'll find thoughts like this in this song. All who see me mock me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've cast lots for my clothes. They've pierced my hands and feet. But it doesn't end there. Just like most of us know, amazing grace, we know how it starts, but we know how it ends. When we've been there 10,000 years, shining like the sun, right? It ends praising God. Well, Psalm 22 is a song kind of like that. Psalm 22, 24 says this. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not, he has not 
He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. Is it possible that Jesus chose to pray the opening words of Psalm 22 to not only reveal his despair, but also to reveal his trust that God had heard him? In the end, in the end, it wasn't God who abandoned his son. It was us. We're the abandoners. We build crosses, and we build them to punish, and we build them to destroy, and we build them to tear down what we don't understand or what we don't agree with or what makes us question our own motives. It's just easier to destroy than it is to change. We build crosses, Jesus builds tables. Our vision this year is the vision of the table. Tables of reconciliation and tables of restoration and tables of healing and tables of friendship. We build crosses, Jesus builds tables. And on top of all of it, we still struggle with our own feelings of abandonment. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. We, we, we all, at some point in our life, struggle with the feeling, where is God? Does God see this? Does God know this? Does God feel this? Does God understand how I feel? And wondering how long before God will answer, does something, intervenes, is he listening? And here's the deal, here's the thought, here's the takeaway. Here's what you can leave with resting assured this morning. When we feel abandoned by God... See, uh, feelings aren't a choice. Feelings happen, right? Sometimes they happen to you. I can't control how I feel all the time, and I don't think that you can either. But when we feel abandoned, we must choose to trust that God really, not ha really, really has not abandoned us. And that's a choice. And by the way, it's one of the hardest ones. Because it swims upstream sometimes against the current of everything you feel. In your darkest moment, in your lowest moment, in your most insecure moment, in your most wounded moment. When nothing seems to be going right, when, every, when all your best efforts seem to have turned against you. That... It's a critical moment. And it's the moment that we have to choose to build a table and not a cross. Not to destroy, not to abandon, not to break, not to tear down, not to frustrate, not to crush, not to dehumanize. But to say, God, despite what I feel, I trust, I choose to trust today that you've not left me. That you've not left me. That you've, that you've not abandoned me. It's hard to do when our emotions tell us something different. Although our place is in the crowd, we've all abandoned him, but he's never abandoned us. Isn't that something that God in Jesus Christ who felt the most abandoned, when he had every opportunity to call thousands of angels from heaven to come and rescue him off the cross he stayed on that cross because he didn't want to abandon you 
I'll tell you the hardest time to do the right thing is when people are doing the wrong thing to you. And the whole world was doing the wrong thing to him. The whole world abandoned him. And like a faithful friend, he stood by the side of the world and said, though you abandoned me, I'll not abandon you. And the proof was, he stayed on the cross. And then do you remember when he was resurrected, he told them, go into all the world and preach the gospel, teaching them to obey everything I commanded, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Do you remember the last part of that verse? And I will be with you always, even until the end of the world. I just came to say to you this morning, there are as many different emotions floating in this room this morning as there are people. And some of you are sitting here today and you're in a season, you're in a time, you're in a circumstance where you have felt the feelings. What's going to happen? When's this going to work out? When's something going to change? And I just want to be a messenger of light this morning to say to you, Despite what you and I have all felt at times, God's not left. It's not in His character. He cannot violate His own character. He will not leave you. He will not abandon you. His word is promised. His actions have taught us that. And so this morning, as we pray, I I was thinking about those of you who are waiting on God. Waiting God for something waiting on God for an answer waiting on God for direction, waiting on God for wisdom waiting on God for healing waiting on God for a breakthrough waiting on God for a relationship to be restored you're in in a, a pattern you're in a holding pattern right now if I'm honest with you the most frustrating seasons of my life are not the ones when God says Go this way. I, I, I find myself highly motivated in those moments. It's the ones when he says, sit here. You're not going to work. I'm going to work. Sit here and wait on me. I'm working. I go, but God, I can't see you. I can't see what you're doing. Trust me, I'm working. But Lord, I, what are you doing? I'm not going to tell you, but I'm doing what needs to be done. But Lord, what does that look like? Uh, Lord, how long will it be? I'm not going to tell you that, but sit here and wait on me. Those have been the most frustrating times of my life. I find it not coincidental that they were the most frustrating times of Jesus' life. God, don't you see what I'm going through on the cross? And even now you've left me. Would you stand with me this morning? And I'm going to ask our prayer team to come.